today is from Colossians 2, 16 to 3, 4. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and, let, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of God. When I was a young child, I remember seeing this odd movie by uh, Danny Kay called The Court Jester. Any of you, any, a few of you kind of remember, yeah, you're laughing even while you say it. And I remember watching that movie and just being, I was just enthralled with this, uh, uh, this character. It was so funny. To me, Danny Kay was one of the really top-notch actors of that gener- doing that kind of thing, much better than some of the other people. But anyway, um, in that story, The Court Jester, as I recall, and I really don't remember much of the story, but I remember one in particular scene. is a very famous scene, uh, a, scene a scene that talks about the, the vessel with the pestle and the chalice in the palace. Remember that? Some of you remember that. It's a fascinating thing where Danny Kay ends up becoming sort of a fake court jester. He's trying to protect the infant king. There's a story around it. And ultimately, they decide uh, there's there's going to be a duel. Well, Danny Kay is the worst duelist ever, and so he just knows he's gonna die. And so one of the people come to him uh, uh, and he's going to pretend and want to come to him and tell him what's going on. And he says, well, if I die, I just pray that I die bravely. Griselda says, you'll not die. You'll not have to fight him. Griswold dies as he drinks the toast. They drink a toast before. And she's put some poison in the, in the, the, the drink. And so she says to him, uh, you want, Griswold dies as he drinks the toast. He says, what? She says, listen, I have put a pellet of poison in one of the vessels. Which one, he says. Some of you are laughing already, right? Remember? I won't say it as well as him. She says, the one with the figure of a pestle. The vessel with the pestle, he says? Yes, she says, but you don't want the vessel with the pestle. You want the chalice from the palace. I don't want the vessel with the pestle. I want the chalice from the what, he says? The chalice from the palace, another one says. Hmm. She says, it's a little crystal chalice with a figure of a palace. The chalice from the palace has the pellet with the poison, he says. (laughs) No, the pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the pestle. Oh, he says, the pestle with the vessel. She says, no, the vessel with the pestle. 
well, what about the palace from the chalice? She says, not the palace from the chalice, the chalice from the palace. Well, he says, where's the pellet with the poison? This is like who's on first, isn't it? She says, in the vessel with the pestle. Don't you see, Jean says, the, po- the pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the pestle. And Griselda says, the chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. It's so easy I can say it. She sa- he says, well, then you fight him, <laughs> you know. She says, listen carefully. The pellet with the poisons in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. He says, well, the pellet with the poisons in the pe- vessel with the pestle, the chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. Good man, she says. And the other says, remember that and you're just fine. <laughs> well, you know, Danny was kind of confused. The, stacks, the, the stakes were very high. He had to make sure he chose the right vessel, the one that was the poisonous one to give to the, you know, the enemy and not drink the, the, the unpoisonous. I remember laughing when I saw this comic interchange. And some of you are even laughing as you remember that, that interchange. And of course, it gets even more funny than that as it goes along because actually the eternal, there's, there's actually a flagon with a dragon in there as well. But anyway, that comes up a little bit later. It it makes me smile as I, think, as I think about it. But Danny's plight in this situation, while played for comic laughs, was very serious. For if he drank from the wrong vessel, the wrong chalice, he would face very serious consequences. Well, I couldn't help but think about that movie and his dilemma as I, as I looked at the text that we're studying that we're considering today. For just as Danny Kay faced a bewildering array of options, each of which carried with him life and death consequences, so too we are bombarded today with a plethora of religious possibilities. I mean, we live in such a... The, the, the playing field is all opened up for us today. We don't know what to believe. There's so many religious options. Whom are we to trust? Is all religious and philosophical truth relative? And does it really matter? Can you just choose your own truth? Can you drink out of any old vessel as long as you're sincere and it doesn't matter what's inside of it? It's all the same stuff. That's what a lot of people tell us. But is it really true? Are the consequences as serious as they were for Danny, which do we choose, the vessel with the pestle or the chalice with the valise? Which do we choose when it comes to our following after spiritual truth? Well, a lot of us feel a little confused about that, particularly if we were not raised in a particular religious tradition, is we're sort of examining it out. And we hear lots of people talking as though religious ideas are simply a smorgasbord of good stuff and just pick and choose what you want and it's all the same. Well, is it? Something within us tells us that if A is true, B might not be true. And if B is true, A might not be true. It makes only sense to us. How do we figure this out? Well, if you feel a little confused sometimes, this is a message for you. For in this text today, the Apostle Paul comes right to the main point of his letter. He's been, we've been studying this letter, the letter to the Colossian believers, a small church in, 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 in an area of Asia Minor where they were brand new Christians, and they were very confused because Christianity wasn't wasn't well known by then. And who was this Jesus in whom he had, they had placed their faith? And how did he relate to the larger religious traditions of their day? And how were they supposed to manage their way through this plethora of ideas out there? How are they going to figure it out? The Apostle Paul wrote this book, which we've been studying, and he wrote this book to help them decide what was truth, 
discern between what was truth and what was error. He knew that there were people out there who were offering a counterfeit Christianity to these brand new believers. These people might be sincere, but they were sincerely wrong in Paul's opinion. Paul, in a very clear and straightforward way, tells these new believers how to steer away from counterfeit teaching and how to make sure they drink well, drink deeply from the well of the, we might say, the brew that is true, right? It's difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult for us as well, too, as I said. We have so many religious options out there. I mean, after all, we may not want to embrace any religion at all, or will we, maybe we'll embrace the religion of reason and materialism, realizing that that's basically a religion as well. And if we choose a religion, which shall it be? One of the great Western monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And if we choose Christianity, which shall it be? Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant? And if we choose Protestant, which will it be? Mainline, evangelical? I mean, we get confused. Which do we pick? How do we what really matters? What's at the center? What really informs this decision? Well, we're going to take a look at this, this scripture together under three, uh, uh, three different ideas. We're going, to look, we're going to look at the characteristics of counterfeit Christianity. We're going to look at the core of counterfeit Christianity. And we're going to look at the cure for counterfeit Christianity. What we're going to talk about today is the, the characteristics, the core and the cure for counterfeit Christianity. Paul alludes to these in this text. First of all, let's take a look at the characteristics of counterfeit Christianity. And I have to say, one of the reasons we teach the Scripture like we do week to week, week to week, is it, it forces me to sometimes talk about stuff I don't really feel like talking about because we're teaching the Scripture. And so I'm really looking forward to getting into the next chapter when we can talk about the real positives. But we have to take seriously what Paul is saying here about the danger of getting sidetracked in our lives. So the characteristics of counterfeit Christianity that he talks about, I would call, I'd summarize it this way. And you can put these down on, the, on your notes in the insert to your bulletin where we also have the text printed for you. First of all, we'd say he says it was characterized by a fascination with diets and days. Now, don't think about diets as in losing money or losing weight, rather. Uh, diets as in terms of what you're supposed to eat and what you're not supposed to eat. Verses 16 and 7. Therefore, he says... That no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul is referring here to the Jewish dietary laws and their day observances. They had very strict things, rules about what they could eat, what they could not eat, what they were supposed to eat, what they were supposed to stay away from. These, these characterized their lives. And they also had very strict rules about when they could work. I mean, they had a Sabbath day, which is a holy day, and it didn't matter where they lived. They had to observe that Sabbath day. Imagine what kind of culture uh, difficulty that would create uh, for these Jewish people. Because I'm sorry, I can't work that day. What do you mean you can't work that day? Everybody else is working that day. No, I'm sorry, I have to take a day of rest. That's what my religion requires of me. They were very strict about it. And so the, there was apparently some people coming into these new Colossian believers, and we really don't know exactly what this other teaching was, but this part certainly lets us know that it had a lot of a Jewish component to it, a component of saying, if you really want to follow Jesus, Jesus, of course, 
was part of the Jewish tradition, and so you need to become a Jew if you want to really be a good Christian, okay? So they, they, were, they were seeking to persuade these new believers that the next step for them was to embrace Judaism. And he says, no, 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 I don't want you to think that this faith is all about observing diets and days, you see. He wanted them to know that the gospel was enough. That's the first characteristic that we saw here. The second thing we see here is that there was a fascination with disciplines and devotions, verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his serious mind. I just summarize this by a fascination with disciplines and devotions. There was a strong ascetic uh, component that was going on, where people were asking them to deny all their physical passions, all the physical, the physicality of their lives, to live separate from that. That's what asceticism typically is. It involves generally a lot of extreme religious practices. Now, there's nothing wrong with having specific religious practices, but if they become an end in themselves, they become an idol. They, are, they, they can become a way we worship ourselves by our own religious devotion. And the second thing was this worship of angels and various, devotion, uh, various visions that these people had. There was a fascination with these disciplines and devotions. Uh, there was a devotion to ex angels and to ecstatic visions and to religious experiences. Sometimes we can worship religious experiences. We've probably had that a time or two. You go somewhere and you have a fantastic experience and you just want to get that thing again, right? And you be, if you're not careful, you begin to worship the experience rather than the God who gave you that experience. So you have one more big experience to keep looking for, chasing one more spiritual high after another. Now certainly, sometimes we have spiritual highs. They're good things, but we can't become more committed to those than we are to Christ. So there was a fascination with devotions and with discipline. And then thirdly, there was a fascination with rules and regulations. Notice what it says in the uh, 20th verse. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You see, there was a fascination with rules and regulations. You see, again, this was a focusing on tangible expressions. It's like, I can tell you who's religious because I, I can tell because of the, the cut of your hair if you're a man, you know, in the 70s. If your hair was long, you're probably a bad guy, right? You remember that? And people, wait a minute. What does that do to the real heart of myself? We always do that. We judge people on external appearances, how they dress, how the, what kind of car they live, uh, they drive, where they live, all these things. We tend to judge people. And he's saying we get, we get focused on these rules and regulations. It's a focus, he says, on uh, things which are passing and perishing. It comes out of a false belief that you can measure the heart by these exterior actions. It's a focus on the outside of the cup rather than on the entire interior life. Really, it comes down to this whole idea of legalism, of really getting caught up with right things and wrong things. Now, are there right things and wrong things? Yes. But if we begin to worship these things, we're missing the point. I mean, I grew up, as I already mentioned, in a very conservative environment. I mean, in our home, there was no drinking, there were no movings, there was no swearing, there was nothing that you know you often associate. And we didn't, we weren't exposed to any of that whole thing. And and I have, and here I am now, years later, having church in a saloon. Can you imagine that? You say, 
I don't know what's gotten into me, you know. But, uh, but you see, because we, we can easily mistake the exterior for the interior, we, we do that. And often people will set up rules and regulations about how exactly you're supposed to worship. And the Apostle Paul says, no, no, no. These characteristics, this fascination with these things, these are not really the essence of the Christian faith. And he went deeper, and I want you to see on this second point, the core of counterfeit Christianity. What's Paul upset about this? He's upset about three things. Number one, he's upset because this, this, this counterfeit group has a focus on the shadow, not on the substance. A focus on the shadow rather than the substance. He says, these things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, let me reiterate, it's not as though religious devotion is a bad thing. It's not as though anything goes, you can do whatever you want. It's not as those things are unimportant, that spiritual experiences don't matter. They do matter, but we've got to be careful we don't worship the experience, the devotional activities, get so caught up in the thing itself and forget the reason for the thing behind it. He's, that's what he said that they had done. They had gotten caught up with the shadows and un, unwilling to embrace the reality. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's speaking here about those questions about dietary laws and days observances, all these rules and regulations. He says, those things were pointing to Jesus. Now you have Jesus. Don't hang on to those things anymore. We can fall in love with the shadow rather than with the real thing. The shadows are their religious observances. The real thing is Jesus. I don't know if it happens very often, but, uh, but I, I've seen in movies lots of times when people, uh, like soldiers are off and away, they have a picture of their beloved, right? They carry a picture of their girlfriend or their wife or their mother, you know, or something to that effect. And they, they, may, they become very attached to that photograph, right? They put it up everywhere they go. They look at it every night. They talk to it when they go to bed. Very emotionally attached to this photograph, okay? So let's imagine that were to happen to me. And I would have gone away and had this photograph of my wife or my girlfriend. In, the, in this case, Donna. Where is she? She's back there somewhere. Oh, there she is. All right. That was a little scary. All right. So uh, I, 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 now, that, now that she's embarrassed me, I'm going to embarrass her. When I went to college, she gave, she knows what I'm going to say. When I went to college, we were going together in high, we've been together since we were 16. And I uh, went to college. It was very difficult because we've been together for a couple years and kind of, you know, she was still in high school. And um, so she gave me a pillowcase that had her picture on the pillowcase. It's a little creepy, I know. Remember that, dear? Yeah. So, well, I'll leave it to your imagination. So let's imagine that I get home uh, to go home at Thanksgiving, my first trip back. And when I come home to see Donna at Thanksgiving, uh, and she was in, we lived in Lake Havasu at the time, and I was going to school in California. And let's imagine I come in. When I come in, I'm carrying that pillowcase. I'm carrying that pillow. And she says, hi, Steve. And I say, Hi, Donna, and I start kissing the pillowcase. That's just kind of weird. Why? That was the photograph. That was the shadow. It had a place, but now the real person's right here. Embrace her. Do you see? And so often we get 
married to, in love with our practices, our devotions, our things. We worship those things, and we miss the reality. You see the point? Pretty good illustration, I hope. Yeah. All right. So those are the shadow. They were focusing on the shadows. If we're not careful, we can lose sight of Jesus himself. We can become more in love with right living than we are with Jesus himself. We can become more in love with right thinking than we are with Jesus himself. I see this all the time in conservative circles. We get all caught up in living the right ways. We really care about that. But we've forgotten that we really do it out of love for Jesus, right? And someone lives a way that's a little different than me. They partake of an activity that I don't think is right, and I get all upset with them. I don't know about their heart. They're probably just as in love with Jesus as I am, right? You know what I'm saying? Or we get all in love with our theology. You know, theology matters. Right living matters. Please don't misunderstand me. These things matter. But they're pointers towards something. They're pointers to Jesus. And so I get all upset because you don't share 100% of the theological convictions that I have. We have 99% together, right? But we disagree about this one thing, and I'll just fight with you. I'll treat you like an enemy when we love the same Jesus. We ought to love the same Jesus. You see, the core of getting mixed up is losing, falling in love with the shadow following love with the picture on the pillowcase, <laughs> following love with the volleyball <laughs> called Wilson, and forgetting these are symbols of a deeper reality. It's all about Jesus. He says, let no one pass judgment on you about these things. They're paying attention to the shadow. Keep your eyes on the substance. The second thing about the core of counterfeit Christianity that he talks about here it's a focus on the teachings and the teachers rather than the head and the body. They're focusing on the teachings and the teachers rather than the head and the body. There's some overlap here, of course, but notice what it says. Whereas in the previous section it says, let no one pass judgment on you. Now he says, let no one disqualify you in sitting insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about, you see this, the picture, going on in detail about my experience, my, my vision. Look what the Lord told me, you see? And ultimately, I can create a situation where what you're attracted to is to me, your teacher, and my great spiritual experiences. So you begin to follow me. No, we're meant to follow whom? Jesus, you see, hold, not, no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, capital H, who is the head? Jesus, from whom the whole body, who is the body? The church, right? The whole body nourished together, Nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Yeah, this going on in detail about being puffed up. We, we see this, guys. Whenever you see a powerful, charismatic teacher, or one who just really has great ideas, ask yourself some important questions. Ask yourself, who is being exalted here? Who is being exalted here? Is it really about Jesus, or is it about that person and his following? Has Jesus become a means towards his own personal aggrandizement? It happens, guys. It happens. 
This guy's puffed up without reason. He's full of his own self. He's obscuring the glory of Jesus. Does this teacher cause me to feel great and glorious things about Jesus or great and glorious things about him? Oh, in our American culture, we are so caught up with hero worship. If they wrote a book, if they're on TV, if, if a lot of people are going to hear them talk, if they tell good stories, yeah, you know. But how about if we just turn it towards Jesus, you see? Focus on the negative things of focus on the teachings and the teachers rather than on the head. Often teachers will give great truth, but what are they omitting? Are they forgetting to tell you some important facts, like maybe the fact that, you know, for example, if the whole message is one of prosperity and health, and if you just follow Jesus, it'll all be perfect for you. If the whole message is that, what are they not telling me? Isn't there also a theology of suffering and a theology of poverty that's found in the Scriptures as well? What's being omitted? Where's the evidence on suffering and service, you see? Does this teaching lead to holding fast to the head? Who is the head here? Is it the preacher or is it Jesus? You see? Yeah. And look, we might ask ourselves also a third question about it. What is the effect of this teacher's teaching? Does this teacher build up the body of Christ or does he build up his own gathering? You see, does he call people to commitment to a local fellowship of believers or is he simply calling people to himself, to his agenda, to his program. Is this growth from God, or is it due to clever marketing and programming? That's one of the challenges for us as a church. We started here with no money, nothing, but just the idea. <laughs> and and, and what, what's happened is all this stuff keeps happening. You guys keep coming and showing up, and we keep thinking, we've got to do something to make it. We, we don't know, you know? Certainly, there's not a lot of clever programming and marketing or slick preaching going on here, you see? It's not happening, and we don't have an air conditioner. Well, we, you know. So is it coming from God, or is it more about tips and techniques and technology and marketing? Not that these things are unimportant, but all right. The third thing under the second point, I have three points or three sub-points here. makes me feel happy as a preacher. A focus on the perishable regulations rather than the permanent realities. He speaks these have a, an appearance of wisdom. They feel they, they, these are all things destined to perish as they're used. And in fact, when Paul writes this in the 22nd verse, he's using almost a little bit of a crudity when he's talking about it. You know, when Jesus says these things all go out into the, to the latrine, Jesus says that at one time. When Paul says these things are all destined to perish with use, you're worshiping the food that you're eating, don't realize it's going to end up in the dung heap, Right? He says, come on now, pay attention to the deeper realities. Yeah, we've got to be, he speaks about an appearance of wisdom in verse 23 and promoting self-made religion. Oh, that, that just makes me sad, self-made religion. Yes, yeah, sometimes we can turn this faith that we're talking about today in somehow to get God to be your genie in the bottle, to get you, to get him to do what you want him to do, to fix all your problems. It's all about you. God is all about you. That is not the gospel message at all. No, the self is not the ultimate project of the church, but the glory of God is the project of the church, you know? We don't want to become a church of tips and techniques Three steps to a happy marriage, a great career, how to overcome pressure, turn it all into that. No, 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 no. 
often there can be many great ideas in churches about how to get your life together, but very little focus on Jesus. If we're not careful, we will create a self-made religion, a religion of the self, and the American culture loves that sort of thing, doesn't it? It just does. No, we don't want the self to be the great project, and we don't want the function of the church to help you improve yourself, nurture yourself, be, su- be successful. Do we care about you? Yes. We care about you too much, like good parents who care about their children too much to give them everything they think they want when they're four years old. You know, you see, we can be so self-absorbed, and the gospel tells us we need to let go so God can fill us, you see. Yeah. Where is Jesus in all of these things? Is he just a means to my own personal happiness? Is that what this is all about? No. No. Well, let's close then by talking about the cure for counterfeit Christianity. The cure for counterfeit Christianity. What would it be? Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Notice what happens in here. There's three things I would say. First of all, hold fast to Jesus. He is the substance of your life. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Stay Christ-focused. Hold on to Jesus. Refuse to fall in love with the the shadow. Refuse to get more committed to the pillow than to the picture, to the person whose pillow is on it. You see? Refuse to become so committed to my theological thinking that I put that in the way of God. That's what the first century religious people did. They were so sure how it was going to happen that they missed it when God worked. Refuse to get committed to that. Hold fast to Jesus. See that he is the substance of your life. Hold fast to Jesus. Secondly, he is the source of your life. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. He is the source of your life. You will grow as you stay focused on Jesus. And thirdly, hold fast to Jesus. He is your life. It's all about Jesus. He gave you life. He gave his life for you. He gave you those passions. He gave you the ability to enjoy food and drink. He wants you to do it within the right boundaries so it doesn't destroy you, but makes your life joyful, you see? He gave the capacity to, to, to imagine a future, and he wants you to imagine a great future, but one which serves people and doesn't take advantage and abuse people. Yeah, hold fast to Jesus. He is your life. Verse 20, if with Christ you died, why are you still alive in the world? And we're just going to briefly look at chapter 3 because we're going to start there next week. Notice it says, verse 20, if with Christ you died, verse 3, chapter 3 and verse 1, if then you have been raised up with Christ. He's really saying, don't you see what happened when Jesus died for you? He gave you new life. Hold fast to Jesus. He is your life. Listen to the text, chapter 3, verses 1 and following. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See to the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What he's talking about here is that the resurrected life of Jesus lives inside of you. If you stay focused on him, 
His life will work through you. You'll know the things you know to do. You you know the right things to believe. You'll know the right ways to act. He will make it happen for you. Yes, hold fast to Jesus. The cure for counterfeit Christianity is to never lose sight of Jesus, to never lose sight of who he is and what he did. You know, we began by joking about Danny Kay and the vessel or the chalice. And his goal was to not drink the chalice, which would kill him. But, you know, Jesus came, and he drank a cup. And he had a very different agenda, didn't he? He came to drink the cup of death so you and I could receive life. You see? Does that make you want to worship him? He came to drink that cup so that we could have life. And that's what he did. Keep your eyes on that story. And you will not get sidetracked into all the rabbit trails out there. And you will find yourself growing like you should because Jesus can be counted upon you, uh, counted upon to give his life to you. As we died with him in his death, we are raised to life with him. Will you worship Jesus? Will you affirm Jesus at the center? Will you hold all your theologies and all your practices a little more lightly and instead embrace Jesus, God in the flesh, God who gave his life for us, God who rose up from the dead for us, God who lives within us, God who wants to live through us, God who brings new life in us and helps us to bring new life to this world. Let's have prayers. We close. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful and thankful that you have come to us. We want to hold fast to you. We know that you are the source of life. You are the substance of life, and you are, in fact, life itself. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. I give my life as a sacrifice for the world. Thank you that he was willing to drink that cup for us so that we could have new life through him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.